0: O oh God, whose glory it is always to have mercy, be gracious to all who have gone astray from your ways, and bring them again with penitent hearts and steadfast faith to embrace and hold fast the unchangeable truth of your word, Jesus Christ, your Son, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Today is uh, March the 5th, 2023, and this is the second Sunday of Lent, and that's the collect appointed for that particular day. So we've had a good week. It's been uh, odd, awkward. There's been some difficult times, let's say. Um, My brother-in-law, Mike, uh, who lives over in Knoxville, Suzanne's brother, died um, last Saturday Um, unexpectedly. But he had, he had been sick for quite a while, had had lots of health problems, but, but nobody expected him to die right away. And so we, we all were shocked last Saturday morning to find out that, that they had found Mike dead. And, and so uh, this is, I'm, I'm recording this on Friday um, because tomorrow I've got to go to Knoxville. We're doing the, um, the funeral is tomorrow, and so I'm, I'm doing that funeral. So um, by the time you hear this, I will have already done that. I, I will say, though, that I've probably been— um, more anxious about that message than than like for instance this message. Uh, it's it's hard to think about trying to sum up somebody's life over a forty year span that you know um, and knowing something about the, the time that came before that. But but really not you know um, not it's not going to be easy in any stretch of the imagination. And, and the part of the reason is, this a man who went through much in his life, who accomplished a lot, who did a lot. Uh, but who who had definite seasons of time in his life and then, and so you know the season of prosperity, a season of loss, a season of uh, being lost <laughs> for a season of time and then and then absolute utter redemption you know it, it it's just amazing to see the way that God cared for Mike over the last several years and at probably at least the last six years I would say and um, Suzanne and I have have talked about it and and even before he died we were just amazed at God's miraculous and wondrous love for him in in, in the way that that God provided for him in ways that that enriched his life so much but and, and I believe it has much to do with his uh, sort of return to the Lord he encouraged me to come and start a church wherever they were um, and, and a, and a I didn't feel called to do that. So at any rate, um, it, it's been an interesting week, to say the least. So so um, just keep us in your prayers as we go through this season of grief. Um, it would be great. Um, so today, what do we have? We have, um, first lesson is the call of Abraham. So, you know, to kind of recap... <laughs> The story of Genesis prior to that, you've got the creation, you've got the fall, you've got Cain and Abel, you've got the flood, and then after the flood, and then you've got the Tower of Babel, and then God scattered and divided people uh, by confusing language after the uh, sin of the Tower of Babel. And then out of the blue, suddenly you get, now the Lord said to Abram, who we've just got some genealogy about just before this. Uh, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I'll make of you a great nation, and I'll bless you, and I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from haran so if we look back just before this just a little bit before this um, in genesis 11 what we had was is that that abraham um, was with his father and their whole family and they were in haran in this place and and so what we get is let me read. So these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. So Haran and Abraham are brothers, therefore Lot is nephew. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred and Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abraham and Nahor took wives. In the name of Abram's wife was Sarai. In the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter in law his son Abram's wife and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan or Canaan but when they came to Haran they settled there. So what had happened was is that that the journey was incomplete. They intended to go to the land of Canaan. And Canaan, remember, was the granddaughter of No, grandson, sorry, of Noah, who had been cursed at the time. Canaan's father, Ham, uncovered the nakedness of his father Noah. I'm not going to get into all that right now, but it, but at any rate, that Canaan is the land where the people, the, the descendants of Canaan, the grandson of Noah, lived, and, and it's the land that's ultimately given to uh, the Israelites. But not until the sin of the Canaanites fills the land, and then they have to be driven out of the land. So then so what we get is is a movement of Terah and Abram and Sarai and because their names have not yet been changed to Abraham and Sarah. So that Abram and Sarai and Lot go with Terah, the father of Abram, and they go to a different place. They go to a place called Haran. And and then from Haran, and they're they're intending to go to the land of the Canaanites, but they settled In haran part of the way there so now god calls abram to go further and to go into the land that god's going to show him and at the last verse that we read is that he was 75 years old when he departed from haran so he'd been living at home with his father for a very long time so what we get is is then he is married sarai and they have no children And so they take Lot with them as though he were a child of their own because he is the child of Abram's dead brother. So they take him with them, and they go, and and, and they're going to leave. Um, Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. So he's told to leave his country and his kindred and the father's house to go to the land God will show. In other words, I, I'm not going to tell you in advance where we're headed, but but I can tell you that I'm taking you there. So, so God promises Abraham, or Abram at the time, um, that he's going to make his name great. <clears throat> it, the other interesting thing is that, that one other time when God calls Abraham to go and do something, he also says, it'll be a place that I show you when he's told to take Isaac up to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So, so twice in his life, God says, I want you to go somewhere for me. I want you to do this in obedience, and I want you to, to discover there what I'm going to show you. So Abram goes, and based on the promise that he will make of Abram a great nation. Now, Abram's childless. And so making a great nation of him would be a wonderful thing because what it means is is that progeny, offspring, are going to come from him. And I'll make your name great. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you and those who dishonors. I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed and so we are so we are because we are children of abraham because we are children by faith we believe in abraham's uh son essentially jesus who is of the line of abraham and so through that line all nations all families of the earth are blessed in him so abram is responsible for all of this and what did he do he heard the lord calling him to, to go and he left it was just him lot sarai and the lord to go to this place and, and so one of the things though that we can take away from this is the man 75 years old <laughs> he's not a child by any stretch of the imagination this is already after the flood when god had promised that he wouldn't contend with man forever and that the span of a man's life would be no more than 120 years so so abraham is 75 years old here And is called to go do this new thing. And the promise is made to him. That he will. Of him will be made a great nation. And so his first step of faith. Is right here. It's walking away from everything that's familiar. Trusting that this voice. Is actually God. And then going. And just walking away. And the Lord's going to show him. The land that he's going to give him. And. And yet. At the end of the day, he never has the land. The only possession he has in the land is the tomb in which he buried his wife. And he only has one child, and ultimately he calls him to offer him up as a sacrifice. Or at least believe God that that's what he's called him to do. It's an amazing story of faith, but it's also an amazing story of uh, the, the lesson of you're never too old for God to call you to do something truly amazing and important for his kingdom. In spite of the fact that you may never see the fulfillment of that, and you may never see the the completion of it, of the work that he wants to do through you, we're always called to undertake to do what God calls us to do. it's, It's a truly amazing thing to watch Abram at 75 say, Okay, I'll just go. I will go. And we need to, to understand that, that not until the end will we have the ability to see what our obedience and our faith in him actually meant. And, and one of the most beautiful things that, that the Jews believe about the, the resurrection of the dead is, is that the last people who are going to participate in the resurrection, the last people who are resurrected in their minds are Abraham and Sarah. Why is that? Because upon their resurrection, they will then see the fulfillment of God's promise as they look over the vast throng that God has raised up through them, through Isaac, through Jacob, through his children, and then all the way into eternity through Jesus who greatly and vastly expands the number who are resurrected, and so the glory and the joy of Abraham and Sarah at their resurrection is to see, indeed, their descendants are countless as the stars in the sky and the sand at the seashore. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful view of, of what, it, what it would look like to see the fulfillment of God's promise to those whom he has called and who have responded in faith and obedience to that call. In the in the gospel today I mean there's no telling how many times I preach this gospel um, because it, it comes up frequently in the in the lectionary and it's it's John 3 1 to 17 and it's it's Jesus's encounter with Nicodemus so there came a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews so he, he was part of the ruling class in Judaism and the man came to Jesus by night and said to him and so it's the, the, the at night actually does mean something. It's sort of a surreptitious kind of thing because the Pharisees here at this point have already begun to to oppose Jesus, and so Nicodemus coming at night is a way of saying I don't you know we don't want to be seen during the day coming to you and, and supporting you. Um, So we're going to kind of sneak around at night, which and that the ominous tone of that is is hidden in some ways uh, until you get to Judas's betrayal of Jesus at night. And it was intentionally done at night. The betrayal was in order because they were afraid of the people in order to avoid the scrutiny and the pushback of the people. If I can if we can arrest him at night, try him at night come up with the right trumped-up charges, then we can actually get the people on our side. And here, it's sort of the opposite of that, because he comes at night to see Jesus, but, but not in that way. He, he comes honestly, I think. But but they had already determined that they wouldn't be seen with Jesus. Now, Nicodemus, to the extent that this nighttime visit needs any kind of redemption, certainly Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea going to get the body of Jesus Quote, quote, redeems this coming at night under cover of darkness, because he, G, uh, ultimately what Nicodemus does is that he stands with Jesus, and he stands with Jesus in the light of day when he and Joseph go and retrieve the body of Jesus, and he is no longer going to be a ruler of the Jews because of that. But here he comes at night. It's early days in Jesus's ministry. Um, there very little that has happened. At this period of time, Jesus is called the first disciples. He's done the miracle at the wedding at Cana of Galilee. And now here we are. And so Nicodemus, this Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, he wasn't just a run-of-the-mill Pharisee. He was actually one who was in that ruling class in the Sanhedrin. The great assembly is what that means. And so he comes and he says, Rabbi, that's pretty remarkable. Because they're going to acknowledge later that this man didn't have any learning. He had not been part of the great rabbinic schools of his day. He had not been chosen to be one of the disciples of the two great rabbis of the day. And yet here, Nicodemus is is trying to sort this all out, and he says, Rabbi. So you're a teacher. He recognizes him as a teacher of the law. That's an exalted position within Judaism, and it's a remarkable thing that a ruler of the Jews at this point in time recognizes Jesus as a rabbi. So he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. Even more powerful uh, a a demonstration of of whatever they've seen so far, what they heard John say and give testimony to about Jesus being the Son of God, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and now he comes and says, we know that you're a teacher come from God. That's a powerful statement. That's not a normal thing to say to people by any stretch of the imagination. And why does he say it? Because he, sa- he qualifies it by saying, Here's how we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he said, We see what you're doing, we recognize them as signs. Not just miracles, they're signs in the sense that they point to something. And what, what we, because he says we know that you're a teacher come from God, and we know that because of the signs that you do, and those signs point to one inescapable conclusion in that God is with you. It's a remarkable statement because remember what we see so often going forward is that, that they see the things that Jesus is doing And then they completely misinterpret what they are signs for. They say, hey, no, he does this by the power of demons. He does these things. And so ultimately, they refuse to see these things as God's presence with Jesus. In fact, they attribute his ability to work these signs to the work of demons. So here early, 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 this is the way it goes. Now, we know at the end of chapter 3, which is the chapter we're in at the end of chapter 3 what we're told is 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 that Jesus while he was in Jerusalem he did signs but he didn't commit himself fully to anyone because he knew what was in the heart of man he's in Jerusalem he is among the chosen people of God and doesn't reveal himself to those people so when when he's when um Nicodemus comes with, and I'm hesitant to call this flattery because I believe that he's genuine, so it's not really flattery, but at the same time, it's certainly a good way to start a conversation is to say, hey, these are the things we believe about you. He has made a statement of faith about Jesus. We know you're a teacher come from God. So Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, n- unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, is he implying that then, that Nicodemus has been born again because he has acknowledged that Jesus is a teacher come from God? Or is he saying, you're part of the way there? And Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He, He is utterly confused by what Jesus has just said to him. That, that he thinks in such literal terms about what Jesus says that he, he doesn't even begin to comprehend what's just been said. That sounds like the weirdest thing anybody's ever said to him in his life. W- what are you talking about? How can a man be born when he's old? Is he going to go back into his mother's womb and be born again? doesn't make any sense, Jesus. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Okay, all right, now I'm tracking a little bit better. But what does it mean to be born of the Spirit? That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows from where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? He's utterly confused at everything that Jesus has been trying to say here. What does it mean to be born of the Spirit? What what does that even mean? I, I don't know how to even think about that. I I was born into the kingdom of God. I was born as one of his chosen people. I have the birthright of being chosen. What do you mean I have to be born again? No, I I was lucky in life lottery the first time. I was lucky enough to be born a Jew, the inheritor of all the promises given to Abraham. I don't understand what you mean by being born again and, and what is it? but but he's, Jesus is saying that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that's a criticism of, of the idea that being born as a Jew is enough. He said, no, 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 that's just flesh. That's not eternal stuff, that's just flesh stuff. You're inheritors of the covenant here on earth, but but in order to see the kingdom of God, which is to come, you've got to be born of the Spirit. And something that's born of the Spirit is Spirit, he says. It's a different kind of thing from that which is born of the flesh. It's different in kind. Not just type, but in kind. And so don't marvel that I say that. And then he he makes that statement about the wind blowing where it wishes, and so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus said, are you the teacher of Israel? Now, these are plurals here. Here. Before that, Jesus has been speaking, I mean, these are singular here in this particular verse, but prior to that, and then right after this, and I'll let you know when that comes, the you is all um, plural. Here, though, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? That's personal. That's singular, you. You, Nicodemus. Are you, Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? And then from there, he goes on to say, truly, truly, I say to y'all, you all we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but y'all don't receive our testimony. I've told y'all earthly things, and y'all don't believe, but how can y'all believe if I tell you heavenly things? So that first part, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things, he's speaking personally to Nicodemus, and then after that, he's speaking to all. So he's he's put Nicodemus on his heels in confusion, and then bores in And says, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you don't understand these things. So so they've understood, he says, that you're a teacher come from God. And he says, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. And the implication is then you haven't been born of the spirit. Because you don't have understanding. It's the spirit that gives understanding. And so when he says, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you don't receive our testimony if I've told you earthly things you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Is, is he saying when we, says we speak of what we know, is he using the royal we there? And I believe that absolutely he has. And, be, and, and we bear witness to what we have seen. But y'all don't receive our testimony. I mean, what, what he's saying is, is that, that believe me, believe the witness of me and of the Holy Spirit and of the Father, because we're testifying to what we have seen. So we speak of what we know. And we bear witness to what we've seen, but you don't receive it. You don't have understanding. You need to be born of the Spirit, Nicodemus. That's what Jesus is telling him, is, is that, that there's something else you need in order to truly understand, to know, and to see. And so the Spirit, he says, is the most important thing. You can't see the kingdom of God unless you've been born of the Spirit. He says, no one is ascended into heaven except he who is descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And, and who is he referring to there? Well, he's referring to himself. So very, very early on here, Jesus is telling him exactly who he is. He is revealing himself to Nicodemus in, in a in not completely clear way. Son of Man is a title that's used in Ezekiel, and then it's also used more clearly in Daniel. Um, you see it multiple times in Daniel. But but it's this enigmatic figure, let's say, that that is odd. Because the Son of God, that can refer to angels. It can refer to any kind of supernatural, um, unembodied being. Son of man would tend to indicate one who is in the form of a man. And it would be a messianic title. Everyone would understand it as a messianic title, but nobody would fully understand it. Nobody would fully understand what it meant to be the Son of Man. And so Jesus is pointing to that sort of title that's it's a little bit vague, but everybody recognized it as messianic. And, and ultimately, with Jesus, he is both a Son of God and a Son of Man. He's clearly in the incarnation a Son of Man, even though his Father wasn't a man. <laughs> his Father was God himself, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when he, he speaks about ascending, And then descending, he ascended. No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, he came down. And so he can speak truthfully about spiritual things because he alone knows those things. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, no one at that point in time would have heard that and thought Jesus is speaking about a crucifixion. Because that's an abhorrent idea, particularly in Judaism. It's an abhorrent idea it, in, in general. No, nobody would have would have been able to brook the idea of being crucified. Certainly not the Messiah. So it would be a strange statement to make here, as the as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that no one, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Nobody would have been thinking that He's got to be lifted up on a cross. But if you think about it. If you think about the imagery of being the serpent lifted up in the wilderness, it's when God was angry with the people and he sent fiery serpents among them. And those who got bitten by the serpents died. This is in Numbers. and, and, and those who, uh, but, but then Moses asked for a solution and God says, make a bronze serpent. So the serpent was, well, exactly like the thing that was the problem. But the serpent was the solution. he said, raise that up on a stick. And if you think about that, then it probably was a cross-shaped stick with a serpent going across the horizontal beam. And he says, anybody who looks on it will be saved. They will not die. Well, that required faith because it sounds like lunacy, right? These are real snakes. And you're holding up a bronze serpent on a stick and telling me if I look at it, then I won't die. Well, you know, there's, <laughs> there's an old joke that I heard Red Fox tell one time about uh, a sister in church who was in the balcony getting carried away in the spirit during a worship, and and she leaned over the balcony too far in praise and, and ended up falling off, but she caught a chandelier on the way down, and she's hanging above the people with a dress on. And so <laughs> the pastor looked and said, anyone who dare looketh, upper dress, <coughs> will be struck blind. And one of the uh, old elders in the back, he says, said, well, I'm going to take a chance on this left eye <laughs> and looked up. And, and so that, that's the, the basic idea here is, is that, that I, I don't have any other options. There is no other option. God didn't give a second like, OK, so I can either choose A or B. No, you can choose A. This is the solution God gave, and it seemed like a ludicrous solution. But ultimately, you didn't have any choice but to believe and look at that and hope that it's true. And it was. It was. And so people were saved because of that. And in the same way, those who go gaze on the crucified Christ with eyes of faith, believing that he has taken my sin and given me his righteousness and then he was resurrected from the dead. And, and that that resurrection for all who believe in him becomes resurrection for themselves requires faith. Just to say that I appropriate the truth of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Those things are well attested is true. To say that I appropriate those in the belief that if I believe those things, then I too will experience resurrection. If I take up my cross and follow him first, then I too will experience resurrection. That's the statement of faith, that, that, that his resurrection, coupled with my faith, means I too will be resurrected. That's where faith comes in. That's the evidence of things unseen. But, when I, but I believe it with all my heart. I believe it with all my heart. He says, God, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in him. Should not perish, but have everlasting life, in the same way that whoever gazed on the serpent would not perish. The serpent didn't give them everlasting life. it gave them life extended on earth. but in the same way that the solution in the wilderness is a serpent to the problem of serpents, so then is the son of man the problem, the the solution. For the problem of sin which is well man so man is the problem man is the solution in the same way serpents are the problem and a serpent is the solution for god didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him so jesus didn't come to bring condemnation on the earth which is what john kind of thought that he was doing he says no that's not what I came here to do at all I came here to in order to, to be able to save people well save from what same from ultimate judgment And so Jesus comes to do that one work so that we might be saved from ultimate judgment and we can only do that if we put our faith and trust in him and we walk away from everything else in the same way that Abraham did we're called, to look for that land, as the writer of Hebrews says, and that, that that land to which we're called, we're never going to reach until we die. And so we're we're pilgrims and strangers and sojourners here on this earth because it's not our home. It is our temporary home, but only as we journey through it in order to get to our real home, and we do so by faith. But faith has to be coupled with obedience. Because Jesus said, you know, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. He calls us no less than Abraham was called. We're called to follow Jesus, and, and we're called to do so by taking up our cross and following him. And so we're called to walk that path. We're called to to bear the cross of Christ to the world. And sometimes that'll mean rejection for us, but ultimately it will mean Well done, good and faithful servant. Your reward is heaven. And and Paul speaks about reward in the Romans passage we have today. It's Romans 4, 1 to 5 and 13 to 17. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. I mean, yeah, I mean, you might look good compared to other people, but you can't boast about those things before God. So according to the flesh, what did he get? Is what he's saying. You can't, but if you can if you if you can do these works and you can look good among human beings, then then what about before God, where you can't boast of those things because well they're just human sized accomplishments. He says, "Before did the Scripture say Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness?" And that's when God promised him a son, and he went out and he looked at the stars in the sky, and then we're told that he believed God. God saw the heart. God saw what he believed. Abraham had shown what he believed in multiple occasions, right? I mean, he's shown it by leaving home and going where God called him to go. He showed it by persevering and following God when it would probably have been easy after a few years to say, let's go back to Haran and be settled. I don't like this unsettled lifestyle. But no, he persevered, and he went on and did these things, and then he shows his faith again in taking Isaac up onto the mountain to sacrifice him. But the faith is what prompted the obedience and the works. It has to be the precursor to all those things. He says, now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. You earned them. Add to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. So my righteousness is based on my faith. Well, what's the quality and the quantity of my faith? That would seem to matter. <laughs> uh, if it's going to be counted to me as righteousness, then it, then it better be secure and firm. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. There was no law at the time. The law wasn't given until Exodus. About 400 years later. For it's, if it's the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. If it's all based on obedience, he says, then, then faith doesn't actually mean anything and the promise is void because it was based on faith. For if the law brings wrath, but where there's no law, there's no transgression. So there's only transgressions to the extent that it can be chalked up against. Like if you've got ten commandments, well then then it's easy to say, well he violated one, three, and ten, for instance. I just chose some numbers there, but um, but but it's easy then. He says, but the law, whether there's no law, there's no transgression. So it's got to be based in faith. He said that's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. And be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, which would be the Jews, but to the, also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. As it's written, I've made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And Abraham believed that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. So in essence, he believed in resurrection, And that was the the biggest step of faith that he ever took was believing in resurrection. And he showed that he believed by taking action and doing as God called him to do. We're called to that same faith. We're called to step out in faith. God might call you to anything at any time. And we just have to be prepared to answer and say, yes, Lord, I'll step out in faith no matter what it looks like it might cost me. No matter that, that, that I may not see the outcome I'll go and I'll do and I'll be faithful and I'll be obedient to what you call me to do. And then later at the resurrection of the dead, we'll be able to see what it is that God's accomplished through us. We're not called to measure accomplishments. We're called to be obedient and we're called to be people of faith. It's as simple as that. It's never easy, but it is simple. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.